The stove is hot. Let's talk about it. You are Locked On MLB Prospects, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, welcome on in to Locked On MLB Prospects, your home for all things minor league baseball. I'm your host, Lindsey Crosby freelance baseball writer and podcaster. Thank you for making this your first listen every single day. We're probably part of the Lockdown Podcast Network where it's your team every day. And typically this Monday show is your show and all the questions uh, in this show come from listeners of the show. But the trade deadline is going on and they are literally making trades as we are recording this. Quick timestamp. It is 9.03 p.m. on Sunday, July 30th. We never do timestamps. But I have to in this case because a trade will probably get done after we record this. So, the big one from over the weekend, the big blockbuster, right? Max Scherzer on the move from the Mets to the Texas Rangers. Uh, they, the Texas Rangers go out and sign Jacob deGrom in free agency. They get the ace from the Mets. He has to have Tommy John, so they then decide, okay, we're just going to go trade for the ace from the Mets, and they go get Max Scherzer. Now, the way this deal works, if you'll remember, Max Scherzer was making $43.3 million. It's a lot of money. And there was a player option for next year that Max Scherzer had the option to accept or decline. Now, Max Scherzer also had no trade protection and could veto a trade. There was a couple things that had to happen for this deal to go through. One, the Mets had to put in money for both seasons. And two, Max had to go ahead and exercise that option, right? So he had to waive the no trade protection and then he had to exercise that option. So the deal ends up being Max Scherzer and a bunch of money. 35 plus million dollars going to Texas for infield prospect Luis Angel Acuna, Ronald Acuna's younger brother. So the money breaks down like this. There's $15 million remaining on Scherzer's contract for the last two months of the season. It's because it's $43 million. You prorate that, it's $15 million. The Mets are paying $9 million of that fifteen for 2023. And then the Mets are also paying $26.8 million of the 2024 amount, which is 43.3. Now, for luxury tax reasons, for salary reasons, the way this works is any of the money that the Mets are sending to the Rangers, that counts against the Mets' payroll. And because they are in the tax, that also counts for competitive balance tax. So the Mets are not only paying this money for Max Scherzer to not play for them. They're also paying a 90% tax on every dollar that they're spending of this for Max Scherzer to not play for them. So it's already $35 million. When you add in the 90% tax, this comes out to almost $60 million that the Mets are paying for Max Scherzer to not play for him. Which means they have spent all of that money to acquire one 
infield prospect. And it's wild to me that you go to the Rangers and you get a prospect. Like, it, it's not somebody with a higher ceiling. I think Luis Angel Acuna is going to be a good player, okay? In A Frisco, over 84 games right now. 315, 377, 453. Seven home runs, 34 extra base hits, 37 walks to 76 strikeouts, and 42 of 47 on stolen bases. He's a contact overpower hitter, right? So it, it's going to be something where it's a good slugging percentage in A. Those are a little bit larger parks, and I think a lot of that is fueled by the doubles, right? He feels like he's going to be a 15 home run guy max at his peak. And to go along with that, he can play shortstop, he can stick it short, uh, probably going to end up moving into second. He's played a little bit of center field this year in A Frisco. That was more because the middle infield in Texas is locked in for a decade not because we think he'd be really good in center field. The fielding percentage, as you can imagine, from somebody converting in double A was just over 900. Didn't look that great. Obviously, he would get better. He would be, he is a top 50, 60 prospect. I'm not saying that the Mets should have held out and fought more to get somebody that's like a, an Evan Carter or a Sebastian Walcott or something like that. It's just surprising to me that this was the only prospect in the deal, right? A guy that can play short is probably going to end up at second base. And the amount of money you're spending, when you count in the luxury tax, you're looking at, again, $60 million of outlay to go get Luis Angel Acuna. And... He stole bags. He 42, he's 42 of 47 on stolen bases this year. The speed isn't necessarily, it's not 80 grade speed. He's a good runner. He's 60, 65 speed, but it's not, like, that's not a carrying tool, right? It's a well-rounded profile without home runs, but there's no real carrying tool here. And so the ceiling isn't as high as you would expect for that kind of financial outlay, but the Mets needed help. Talk about a team that needed help. The Rangers needed help because Nathan Eovaldi went on the injured list. So after the Max Scherzer trade, they turn around and make another deal and they reach out to St. Louis. Okay, they get left-hand pitcher Jordan Montgomery, a starter, and right-hand pitcher Chris Stratton, a reliever. They also got international bonus pool money, which the Rangers have been pretty good. They signed Sebastian Walcott. They've been pretty good at scouting that, so I get it. What they sent is they sent three players. Infielder Thomas Segesi, uh, second base, third base, not going to be a shortstop guy. I'll get to him in a minute. Uh, right-hand pitcher Takoa Roby and left-hand pitcher John King. Okay, King is a major leaguer. He is a reliever, uh, sinker, change-up slider guy. Should go into the bullpen right away. Is not going to be a high leverage guy. He's also going to have to get paid this year. He's going to be arbitration eligible. They may not even tender him. It depends on how much overhauling they do of their pitchers. Roby and Segesi, I have both of them in that middle tier 10 through 20 in this prospect, in this Texas Rangers system prior to the trade. Roby's on the injured list right now, has a shoulder issue, but it's something where... 
you can see this is where the Cardinals are trying to prioritize getting more swing and miss out of their pitchers rather than settling on those lower ceiling ground ball guys that I've been complaining about and they finally realized don't work. When Roby's healthy, he sits mid to upper 90s. He can run it up to 97, can command it pretty well. He's got a curveball. He's got a power slider. And a lot of that, those are more, they tunnel really well and he can fool you and get you to chase versus being able to land them for strikes. So a little bit of work to do still there. He'd be higher on the prospect rankings list if he could consistently throw strikes. But another thing, again, injured list for shoulder injury right now. He missed time last year with an elbow strain. So you've really got to watch Takoa Roby and his health. Thomas Segesi, his career minor league average is almost 300. He's batting 314 this year. Um, very good hitter. Not Power is not amazing, right? I would rather him be at second than third simply because, one, the arm isn't necessarily amazing, and two, the power ceiling isn't that fantastic. And so it's somebody where if he plays at third base, he doesn't fit that typical profile of a power-hitting third baseman, right? So you want him at second instead. Speed is going to be fringe to average. Again, that powers maybe fringe to average. Glove can get better, but it's probably the same thing. And again, gloves get better as you go up through the minor system. That's just the way it works. He's played all over the infield. I really do think he's probably best at second base, but you could play him some at third. Now, if you are the Cardinals, you've got a lot of options because you've got Arenado at third, you've got Gorman at second, you've got tons of shortstop options that can play wherever you want. And where's his future position? I don't know. But he feels like in the infield, he sticks best at second. In just a minute, St. Louis made some other trades, including uh, getting more arms to try to fit this new pitching model. We'll get to those next right here on Locked on MLB Prospects. But first, today's episode is brought to you by our friends at FanDuel. Take your first swing at betting Major League Baseball on FanDuel and get 10 times your first bet amount in bonus bets up to $200. That's right. Just bet 20 bucks and you'll land $200 in bonus bets, win or lose with FanDuel. That's $200 you can spend betting on everything from the money line, the over-under, who's going to hit the first home run, all kinds of options. All of this is on an app that's safe, secure, super easy to use. And when you win, you can get paid instantly. There is no better place to bet on MLB than FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. So sign up today. Visit FanDuel.com slash locked on to get up to $200 in bonus bets. That's FanDuel.com slash locked on. Make every moment more with FanDuel, the official partner of Major League Baseball. Okay, we've seen some more trades, including trades involving St. Louis. So they sent their reliever, Jordan Hicks. You may remember some of the conversation was about, we're going to try to re-sign Jordan Hicks to an extension. And if we don't trade him, we're uh, sorry. If we don't sign him to an extension, we are going to trade him. Breaking news. They did not sign him to an extension and therefore they traded him. He goes to the St. Louis Cardinals and something that they needed. The Blue Jays on Saturday put closer Jordan Romano on the injury list. It's some sort of, it's like a back inflammation thing, but 
whenever it's like it's a back issue, you never know how long a guy's going to be out for. And so it's a really good bullpen. That's been one of the strengths of that Blue Get Jays team. They go out. It's they're like top five in strikeout rate. They're just getting they're just punching dudes out left and right. Uh, they're doing they're the war of that bullpen is pretty high. It's like Baltimore's up there. They're up there. Atlanta was up there for a while, but they don't get a lot of. It's all swing and miss or fly balls, right? Like they're not forcing ground balls, and so that's where Hicks fits in there. He throws 102, 103, incredibly hard thrower, so he can get swing and miss, but he can also generate lots of ground balls. Forcing fastball is the main thing. He's got a sinker. He's got a slider. The slider's the primary swing and miss, right? And then, obviously, the, the sinker, which can hit 100 miles an hour, which is, frankly, not fair for a sinker, but it's 70% ground ball. So, depending on the game situation, if you need a ground ball to get a double play to get out of the inning, he can go sinker heavy. If you have a if you have bases loaded and you need to keep balls from getting out of play, he can go force him up in the zone, drop a slider off of it, swing and miss, strike out, be done. He's also been a closer before, so that helps. It's a good deal for the Blue Jays. Now, who they gave up? They gave up Sim Reverse, which I guarantee you I said that wrong because he's Dutch. And then Adam Kloffenstein. So they're winning the award at the trade deadline for uh, last names on this. But Kloffenstein was something where really interesting, like slider cutter is what he does. Has a two-seam fastball as well. Uh, Throws a ton of pitches, right? Like six different pitches. Uh, But his whole thing, he's a pitchability guy, right? So slider is in the mid 80s. It's not a sweeper. It's more of a traditional slider. The cutter's a true cutter. Sits around 90 miles an hour. The two-seamer, 92-93. It's got sink and run on it. Has a four-seamer. Has a curveball that's got a lot of lateral movement. It's like a sweepy curveball, if that's a thing. Pretty good. Career-wise, over 50% ground ball rate. So, he's pitchability. He's, he has a lot of stuff. And this is back to that old profile of Cardinals pitchers that they would go out and get. But it feels like you're going to be able to add a little bit of luck. He just hasn't been consistent. And so if he can get consistent with some of this, rather than throwing six pitches and them all being average to maybe above average, feels like if you can add a little bit of velocity and some control, you can make him into getting... He still has good swing and miss. It's 27% strikeout rate. It's still good swing and miss. But it's almost a blend of the old style of ground ball pitcher, pitch to contact guy, and what they want out of the new guy, which is swing and miss and whiff. So it feels like a good blend of that if they can develop him. And then Sem Robersi is, again, Dutch, so I know I'm saying that wrong. Back half of the top 10 for the Blue Jays. Change up. Fastball, slider, cutter, curveball, lots of different things. Can't always throw them where he wants to, though. And so it's either he's not landing it for a strike or when he misses in the middle of the zone and it gets crushed, right? There's definitely work that can be done, development that can be done. And the cutter, I think, is going to be the key to this. Sits in the high 80s, but the cutter kind of fills the gap between a four-seamer and a slider, right? So if he can get that cutter to be a little more effective. I feel like there's some physical development in there. I feel like there's some more velocity in there. This could be a really good acquisition for the Cardinals were it to work 
he's probably going to come into the back of their top 10 right away after the deal. Couple more trades that, that did happen. We saw the Chicago White Sox trade Kendall Graveman, the reliever, to the Astros for catcher Corey Lee. This is the second time the Astros have gone to trade for Kendall Graveman. They got him in 2021 from the Mariners. But this is something where Corey Lee was the loser of the Corey Lee versus Yanye Diaz battle to figure out who would replace Martin Maldonado. Defensively, he is very good as far as the arm is amazing, right? Legitimately an 80-grade arm. But blocking-wise, he struggled while pitches, pass balls, the lateral movement, some of that kind of stuff. And so he's fallen back down out of the prospect rankings, right? He had been a lot higher. He's actually, he was up in 2022 and rated, like pitch framing was slightly below average. Blocking was one of the worst in baseball. I think, what was it the StatCast had? There was 110 catchers that had at least 50 pitches caught and he was like 99th in blocking. So a lot of development to be done. If the Brewers got him, he'd be an all-star next season. But this is something where, The White Sox have now gotten Edgar Cuero from the Angels and Corey Lee from the Astros. So it's up to them to figure out a catcher to do here. The Atlanta Braves go out and get Nicky Lopez from the Kansas City Royals for a reliever that they got for cash considerations after he was DFA'd by the Rangers a week ago. And so for virtually nothing. And... It's a really interesting move to me because this is the kind of thing you expect to see the World Series contenders who have deep rosters do, right? Nicky Lopez from 2021 through now is the best rated infield defender in baseball. He didn't win a gold glove because he played second and third and short, but he can play all of those. I want to say it was 21. He was 100th percentile on StatCast and now it's above average. In 22, he was 98th percentile. In 23, in a part-time role, he's 96th percentile. He is one of, if not the best infield defenders in baseball. Now, he batted 300 in 2021. He's batting like 210 now. And the issue is he's forgotten how to hit fastballs. He has negative value on fastballs when he was a positive value in 2021. The good thing is, Atlanta as a team is very good at hitting fastballs. And it has to be more than just the players. It has to be some coaching element. So hitting coach Kevin Seitzer, if the way that Atlanta does all of these trades, what's going to happen is they're going to get Nicky Lopez. They're going to do some work, put him in the minors, and he's going to come out and hit like a pinch hit home run in game five of the NLDS to send the Braves to the World Series or something dumb like that. And then they'll sign him to a six-year, $37 deal with 1% going to the Braves Foundation, and he'll be an all-star in two years. That's just, that's how the Braves do this. They're smarter than us. They make this work. In just a minute, I've got some questions from subtexters, and apparently also a trade happened while I was recording, according to Jeff Passan. We'll talk about that next, right here on Locked on MLB Prospects. Welcome back into Locked in the Movie Prospects. Uh, I am, this is 100% real and raw. A trade happened while we were recording this show. I told you when we started right around 9 o'clock. And so according to 
Jeff Passan, who I have no reason not to believe Jeff because Jeff knows everything. The Angels are finalizing a deal to get both Randall Gritchick from the Colorado Rockies and first baseman C.J. Crone from the Colorado Rockies for two minor league pitchers, right-hand pitcher Jake Madden, left-hand pitcher Mason Albright. Really quick analysis, Gritchick feels a little bit extra in this, but Crone, they need first base. They just DFA'd Jared Walsh, which Jared Walsh went from a 20-plus round pick to all-star, to DFA, wild journey. He's having health issues. I hope everything can go well with him, and hopefully he can stay with the organization, continue to have medical coverage because he's on a major league contract, and get some of those issues resolved. But two pitchers going back to Colorado. Colorado's been trying to acquire arms. This makes a lot of sense. I don't hate the trade for either team. This is more evidence that, yes, the Angels are going for it. The Angels are legitimately trying to, to make the postseason in the last chance they have of contractual control for Shohei Otani. And in the end, I don't think Madden or Albright really move the needle that much for the organization, but bigger picture, they have sent out future talent, Edgar Cuero, Kai Bush, all these different guys, to try to make the postseason this year. And I don't know if that's a World Series roster, but I, as a fan, I do the fact that they are trying. I do like the fact that the Angels are trying to make the postseason. Interesting trade. I'm going to wait just to see if there's anything else in there. And if there is more in there, we'll put out a separate video, a short video tomorrow, talking about this specific trade to update everybody else. couple questions real quick from the subtext mailbag. Again, didn't have time to do a full mailbag because of the trade, but got a couple questions here in subtext I wanted to make sure we got to. Zach, new subtexter. Glad to have Zach. Gave, me, gave us three. We're going to just real quick. We always hear some minor leagues are hitter-friendly and some are not. Are there any sort of stats you look at across all minor leaguers to determine how well they are playing compared to others? He references WOBA, WRC+. There's a lot of stats that adjust at the major league level for the offensive environment you're in, right? So they downgrade some of the power production at Coors Field, etc. We don't, correction, publicly, there's not a lot of great stats that do that on the minor league level. And so for me, when I have the data, because you'll remember that StatCast data outside of AAA and the Florida League is not publicly available. When I have the data, I'm evaluating more of the inputs than I necessarily am the slash line in the app, right? Like I'm looking at the 90th percentile exit wheel or the barrel percentage. I'm looking at the swing percentage. I'm looking at the contact percentage. Uh, So... I'm not necessarily adjusting things for the offensive environment. I wish that we could. I wish that we had that. There is a little bit of mental stuff that I do when I'm looking at prospects because we know certain places. The Southern League is a pitcher's league. We know the Pacific Coast League is very much an offensive league. It's out in the desert. It's hot. It's dry. And so part of that is mentally, like for instance, if I see a AAA hitter in Las Vegas with Las Vegas Aviators, AAA for the Oakland days. I'm taking that with a little bit of a grain of salt. That's just a mental adjustment. I'm not, it's, we don't have a specific uh, stat that I am able to look at that I have access to, but it's a lot of mental work there. If I see a guy with decent power production in the Southern League, I'm probably giving him the second look because it's hard to have decent power production in the Southern League. Uh, there's that. Uh, second question, should DSL or complex numbers be ignored due to low sample size? How do you determine when a player's numbers are a legit indicator of talent? Good question from Zach. That is very much a, 
I don't say look at the entire slash line because of the small sample size, but a lot of that is I look to see what stands out. If there's a bunch of strikeouts, if there's a bunch of home runs, if we do get some stat, if I do get my hands on some stat cast data, and there's sometimes folks will send me something if I ask them for a specific player stuff, looking at some of the outputs that come out as far as exit velos and things like that. Uh, but for the most part, I tend to not pay too much attention to guys in the DSL or the complex until they get into a full season affiliate. Part of that is workload-wise. I am the host, the writer, the producer, the director of the show. So it's just there's 120 minor league teams already. I don't have the capacity. But also because the pitching is usually not good in the DSL and the complex. The sample sizes are so small and we have so little info or reliable info on heights and weights and scouting reports and things like that, that for a lot of these guys, I tend to just wait. There are people, especially in fantasy baseball, who will go pay attention pretty heavily to the DSL and to the complex leagues, and that is more so looking for trends. This guy has gotten an extra base hit in in every game he's played of his 10 games, or this 17-year-old in the DSL has 10 home runs in 12 games. kind of bigger picture stuff like that. But I personally don't spend a lot of uh, time or attention to it. Part of that's workload. Part of that's just, there's so many grains of salt you have to take with. It's almost not worth it. Uh, Another question here. Last one from Zach. When do players who are drafted actually report and start playing on minor league teams? A lot of them, once they've signed their deal, they're reporting to the minor league complex, uh, the, the spring training complex. Now, typically they'll go through an orientation there's paperwork, just like a new hire. There's paperwork, payroll, all of that kind of good stuff. Uh, and a lot of them will start in complex games. And then late July, early August, this is when you start seeing guys making the moves out of complex. We've already seen some of them. The, the Angels have taken Nolan Shanwell. He's already in double A. Like they put him to complex, they put him to A, they put him to double A that quickly. But for the most part, most of the guys who are going to be playing in full season ball are already playing. And a lot of that's hitters. Pitchers are tougher because they typically have not been throwing, they have not been stretched out or they've not been throwing at full capacity from their competitive seasons, whether it was College World Series, whether it was the regular college season or the high school season. Those guys are more likely to stay in complex or to not be part of officially on a minor league roster yet and just be part of the organization and doing side work, doing bullpens, development list, things like that. A little bit, that's another another scenario where I don't really look at a pitcher's numbers the year that they sign. Because by the time they're able to get back into games, let's assume you're a college player who played in your conference tournament and that was it. You were done in May, the end of May, you were done. And it's now the end of July and you're trying to ramp back up for starts. This is, not, this is not emblematic of who you really are as a pitcher. I'm not going to look at these stats that much right here. If I see a significant trend one way or the other, I'm going to watch for that. But for the most part, I'm not too worried about pitching stats from the small season because of that reason right there. Very quick insight on, uh, from Jeff on subtext about Willie Vasquez of the Rays and Carlos Jorge of the Reds. Interested in both these guys. Willie Vasquez of the Rays... I think would be a probably top 10, if not top five player in a lot of other systems, but he's just lost in Tampa because there's so many prospects in that system. Also, does struggle a bit with sliders down in the way, some stuff he has to work on, but I do think he's a talented player, 
probably going to be a second baseman, but my second short, not quite sure there. Carlos Jorge, I, he's got a shot to be a top 100 player next year for the Reds. Uh, doesn't, I don't love the power ceiling, and a lot of people just don't really pay that much attention to him because of that, but I think he's, he could be an offensive first, second baseman, 10, 15 home runs, things like that. Fantastic week coming up this week. We've got more trade deadline stuff. We're going to do these shows as late as we can to try to get as many of the trades in as we can. And then I'll do a show on Tuesday night once the deadline is over with immediate reaction. In the meantime, if you have questions for the show, tons of ways to get them to us. Best ways to subtext. Links in the episode description. Links in the show notes. Until tomorrow's show, remember, it's always a great time to pay money.